Hello and welcome to Tech Weekly, a podcast by City AM, dedicated to bringing you the latest in the world of tech, crypto, fintech and beyond. I'm Nassim Da Silva, here with City AM reporters Charlie Conchi and Lily Russell-Jones. Today I'll be talking to Lily about HSBC moving into the metaverse, and to Charlie about the launch of the International Fintech Group, and how it aims to increase UK fintech's reach. But first, Charlie will be talking to the Chief Commercial Officer of the open banking firm Yapoli about open banking, why it's important, and why integration needs to be sped up. So Charlie, over to you. So this week, uh, a slight disagreement has developed between a group of top fintech firms and the competition watchdog, the CMA, over essentially the speed of decision making and the rollout of open banking technology. Um, So open banking technology was introduced in 2018 to sort of free up data sharing and increase competition between some of the big banks and sort of the fintechs and challenges coming through. But I think the rub really here is that the rollout hasn't gone as quickly as some firms would have liked. And a a group of fintechs came together on Monday to ask the CMA to essentially speed up its decision-making on a few key areas. Um, And it is great to be joined today by Ian McDougall, Chief Commercial Officer of open banking firm Yapoli, which was one of the signatories of the letter. Hi, Ian. Hi, Charlie. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Very good. Good to have you with us. Um, To kick us off, first of all, I wonder whether you could give a sort of bit of a recap and an overview of what open banking is and why it is it sort of at the heart of what Yapoli does? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, without, uh, without going back too far into detailed history, uh, it's always important to understand why open banking exists. Uh, it came about as an anti-competitive mandate uh, here in the UK to, to enable more competition and more innovation in the financial sector so that, as I say, end consumers or, or be they businesses or individuals have, have more choice and more access to innovative services and, and more control over what happens with their financial uh, financial data. Uh, and so that's been pretty fundamental to, um, I think, the industry getting off the ground. Um, as, we, as we've just said, it is regulated. It's, so it's regulated from a competition regulation perspective. That's where it all started. Uh, but also obviously financially regulated as well, given the nature of the services uh, that are being provided. And so that's a great thing uh, to provide kind of the basis or the platform for all of this enhanced, you know, innovation and competition uh, to occur, not just here in the UK. This is where it started, but actually, you know, the regulation that governs it uh, is certainly pan-European now, PSD2. Uh, And so we're really talking about, an environment where it's gone to kind of the next level of scale and reach such that that access and control to bank accounts, we're not just talking about banks here in the UK, but obviously uh, all of acro- uh, all across kind of the regulatory landscape of, uh, of the EU. So when we look at the, the letter that went out this week that you obviously signed and 25 other fintechs signed as well, there was a slight sort of complaint that the CMA had been dragging their feet slightly on some of the big decisions that were involved in the rollout. What was... What do you think was holding that out? Was it was it the sort of as you said there the kind of mishmash of regulators? Was it that crossover? Does it will having one defined entity really speed up the process? Yeah, I think it. I think you've hit it. I think it is the the, the mishmash of regulators. I guess uh, as you say to some degree. Um, you know, there's the CMA, which is the competition regulator. Uh, there's the OBIE. There's the FCA, which is obviously the overarching financial regulator. There's the payment systems regulator or the PSR, which has a role to play. So already you've got four 
bodies uh, that are having some roles to play, and I think there's just an opportunity that, that that just causes complexity and friction in decision in pace of decision making uh, as much as anything, and so that's where the real opportunity for simplification and and you know by extension uh, additional pace can come from. So we do a, a decision on the future of the OBIE um, soon. Is would your preferred sort of way forward be then? You know, OBIE takes this forward as the the sole or you know leading entity tasked with with overseeing the rollout. Look, I think they've done a fantastic job. Um, you know, in their kind of initial, you know, their originally conceived capacity. Um, a very high caliber group of individuals in whom we and many of the other players in the industry have a lot, have a lot of confidence. And to be honest, it's not often that you hear that said um, in, you know, regulated industries. And so, yeah, I think um, if the OBIE in its future form uh, could continue to kind of operate with the level of, you know, quality and excellence that they have, um, then we would love to see them continue to play, you know, a very, very kind of key role uh, in this. And like I say, um, you know, this is obviously for, you know, for, you know, for the, for the CMA and others uh, to determine. But I think one obvious role um, that I think that they could play to build upon their initial success is kind of the ongoing, uh, you know, assurance and enforcement of making sure that all of the players in the open banking ecosystem are, you know, doing what they need to do, that are delivering a high level of kind of quality of service and standards compliance uh, and, and so on, because that allows everybody to operate in just a much more predictable and certain environment. And when you have certainty around you know how this, how this, how the machine or how the system works. Then that just allows you to make decisions confidently uh, and to move quickly. And that's ultimately what is going to is going to um, continue to enable and encourage that level of you know fintech investment. Um, you know, in the UK and you know, building these kind of great products and services where they can dependably and reliably operate in a you know in a known uh, ecosystem. So if we were to look ahead to a year on from now, would what would your kind of ideal um, outlook for open banking be? Would we all be using sort of open banking payments as second nature? What What's the sort of your hope there? Yeah, oh, for, for, for sure. Um, yeah, I think a year from now, what, what do I hope will have happened? Actually, I would hope that we'll have stopped actually using the word open banking in that form kind of in quite the same way. I actually don't think it's, you know, for those in the know and in the industry, of course, it's descriptive. Uh, but for those that are the ultimate users and consumers of the service, it's actually not uh, that meaningful. So I think, you know, a year from now, we'll be talking not about, you know, open banking payments, but we'll be referring to it as, you know, account-to-account payments, for example, because that's what it is, movement of money directly from one bank account to another without the cost and complexity of going through, you know, credits, card schemes, other places. Um, I'd like to think in 12 months from now, this whole topic of regulatory simplicity and trans and certainty, uh, you know, that will have, that will have certainly, um, you know, reached a, reached a good place on that. I think the other thing that I'm very, very kind of optimistic and confident, um, that will be much, all much happier about in 12 months from now will be the role of, not just kind of the new, um, the new uh, organisations like Yapley and you know and our peers who have been born as a result of open banking and to to um, to promote it and advance it, but also those 
players that have been in the kind of the banking and the financial services industry for much longer, and I guess I'm really talking about you know the more traditional uh, and incumbent banks. Um, we've already seen in the last 12 months just a huge shift to be really transparent about it in terms of some level of resistance to open banking to a high level of understanding now of kind of where the opportunity uh, is going to start to come from for them to actively uh, participate in the open banking ecosystem. And I think 12 months from now, you know, we're going to be, you know, light years ahead on that front as well. And I think the, the kind of the analogy that I use when thinking about this is, you know, when, you know, when Tesla first came along and talked about, you know, the idea of electric vehicles and so on, there was, there was initially some uncertainty and some resistance from, you know, traditional, you know, automobile manufacturers. It didn't take very long for those auto manufacturers to get past the, oh, I'm not really sure what this means for me to actually, yeah, I get this and this is a real opportunity for us to drive more innovation in the sector in the future moving forward. Now to the point where you see, you know, a number of those traditional auto manufacturers being amongst some of the great, you know, innovators in terms of all sorts of kind of, you know, electric and sustainable vehicle technology. And I think the same thing is happening right now um, in open banking, that's for sure. Um, we're well and truly past that kind of, you know, initial shock and disruption phase and we're now into the place where just great financial products and services are being built by organizations of all different shapes and sizes and you know 12 months from now we'll, we'll have gone from strength to strength on that even more and i remember when we chatted previously you mentioned a sort of tfl moment when you know for contactless payments there was this moment <laughs> yeah. that suddenly this huge you know you could see the utility of it and you could see why it was such a useful thing to have what do you think could be open banking's tfl moment yeah it's a, it's a good question um i think the very very mainstream adoption of open banking payments or to correct myself based on what i just said before account to account payments the very mainstream adoption by very very large online retailers um or you know large you know tech providers that take retail payments online um, I think has is likely to be kind of you know the the equivalent kind of TFL moment as it was for contact contactless in the in the world of open banking. Um, you know there was a lot of discussion you know earlier late last year and earlier this year in the much publicised kind of Amazon Visa you know discussion around um, you know what alternatives to credit card payments should there be to overcome you know all of the kind of inherent and systemic costs associated uh, associated with cards so i think there's definitely some some examples there um where there's a, we're on the cusp of some some tfl style moments that's for sure and then i think there's also the whole world of data as it relates to open banking because this is not just about initiating payments from bank accounts but it's actually about people having access to kind of far uh, richer and better services based on their kind of banking history and banking transaction data. And I think we're already starting to see some amazing use cases where organizations are delivering much more kind of accurate and responsible, 
you know, decisions when it comes to lending and credit underwriting and so on, uh, that it, where people are really starting to see the power of what open banking can do in that space as well. So, you know, there'll be, I think those, those, those moments are going to come from, you know, have the potential to come from, uh, from a number of places and pr- pretty excited about the year ahead from that perspective. So, Lily, what's been happening this week? Hello, Nassim. So today I have a story about HSBC. The bank is creating a metaverse so that it can engage with customers in virtual reality. Mm. Uh, for listeners unfamiliar with the idea of the metaverse, it's essentially a virtual reality world. So lots of companies are looking to create online digital spaces where people can interact, play games or access services as avatars in virtual reality. Mm. Um, HSBC hasn't said too much about what it wants to use the metaverse for. Uh, they've partnered with the Sandbox, which is essentially a metaverse building platform, which released a photo yesterday of a pixelated plot of land with a rugby stadium bearing the HSBC logo on it. Um, And a spokesperson said that at HSBC, we see great potential to create new experiences through emerging platforms, opening up a world of opportunity for our current and future customers and for the communities we serve. I suspect it might have something to do with another announcement that HSBC made earlier this week when it said that it's planning to shut down 69 physical bank branches in the UK. Mm. So this could be about swapping the physical world for a virtual reality space where people can access services eventually. And do you think that that's something customers would want? Well, we've definitely seen a big push towards digital banking during the pandemic. So experts in banking think that between 700 and 800 physical bank branches are likely to be culled this year alone in the UK, as major banks seek to cut costs and also compete with up-and-coming rivals like Starling or Monzo, who are challenger banks, which are completely digital. And in the future, I think a metaverse could help to fill the gap. So for example, if you want to fill out some transactions or access financial services, you could meet someone virtually at a digital bank who could help you with that. However, I think a lot of people like being able to speak to someone in person. So we all know how annoying automated bots can be. And especially for people who are less technologically savvy, local bank branches are really important for them to access basic financial services. And is HSBC the first bank to get involved in the metaverse? So actually they're not. Um, So the international investment bank, JP Morgan, has also bought a plot of land in the metaverse Mm. on a platform called Decentraland. Uh, And it's set up what looks like a virtual lounge bar called Onyx, which is the name of the company's digital asset department, where people are able to interact as avatars. JP Morgan is very bullish about the metaverse and it thinks that it's going to be the future of a lot of social interaction, transactions and even services in the future. Mm. So JP Morgan estimates that the metaverse is a $1 trillion yearly opportunity, uh, which is pretty interesting. PwC, so big financial services firm, they also think the metaverse could profoundly change how businesses and consumers interact with products, services and each other. And they have quite an explicit focus on delivering financial services with their own metaverse. Like HSBC, they've partnered with the Sandbox to create it. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. Mm, And who else has partnered with Sandbox? So Sandbox has partnered with over 200 companies and celebrities. So it's becoming a bit of an industry standard for metaverse building. Uh, Gucci's partnered with Sandbox, Adidas and Warner Music Group and even Snoop Dogg. 
Mm. Um, and someone actually recently paid $450,000 to buy a plot of virtual land in the metaverse, which made them Snoop Dogg's neighbor. <laughs> but yeah, the Sandbox token, um, it has a native token called Sand and it's up 9.4% today. So one day after the HSBC announcement, it's trading at $3.20 and that's up from around 60 cent a year ago. So this project is going from strength to strength. And I think that that reflects the fact that, for example, Facebook changing its name to Meta and talking about how it wants to bring social experiences into virtual reality worlds, into metaverses, has really made this concept mainstream. So, Charlie, there's been some teaming up between government and fintech this week. Yes, that's right. So the Department for International Trade and Innovate Finance, which is the industry body that represents UK fintech, have announced a launch today of the International Fintech Group, which essentially is a kind of comes directly from the Khalifa Review of Fintech, which I know we've chatted about a few times on this podcast, but mm -hmm. was a sort of overhaul of the sector last year designed to really strengthen it on the sort of global stage. This has come directly from that and it's kind of brief will be to champion the UK as a global fintech hub and really use fintech as a tool for trade. Um, so the, the new group uh, will convene initially for a period of uh, 12 months, uh, sort of, you know, trying to increase collaboration across the sector um, and will be chaired by both Innovate Finance and the Department for International Trade. So how will the new group go about this then? So primarily, it's going to be sort of going into key international markets, building awareness of, of you know, planned trade agreements, how fintech can support those and the kind of frameworks um, that the UK has in place to help fintechs grow or with, you know, the, the aim really of encouraging fintechs to come here and build their businesses here. Got quite a few big names included in that initial um, group, in, you know, Revolut, Klarna, Checkout.com, mm. and the the first meeting is set to take place next month. So it'll be interesting to see that come together, and whether that really will actually start driving some, you know, some business to the UK and some new fintech brands to set up shop here. That's it for this time. Thanks to Lily and Charlie, and thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>